Good morning and welcome to Wanda's Picks, the Black Arts and Cultural Program of the African Sisters Media Network. And that was Zion Trinity singing opening prayer to the African deity, Eshu Legba, a deity that lets us know that we always have choices. We are never victims. and we So we should definitely exercise our options and not feel that there's only one one way or one answer to, uh, to the question we might be facing um, at that particular moment. And we are so excited to have Risa Simpson, um, Push Dance Company founder and artistic director, joining us to talk about the 14th home season and the 6th anniversary of Push Fest Dance Festival, which is featuring, uh, among other things, Mothership 3, uh, choreographed by Risa Simpson. We're looking forward to Mothership 3, Mothership 1, and Mothership 2 were awesome. And a world premiere uh, by Gerald Castle, which we will um, let her tell us about. And there are going to be four different programs of local and visiting artists over three evenings, Friday through Sunday, September 20th through 22nd at ODC Theater in San Francisco, 3173 17th Street. And so you don't want to sleep on this and you don't want to not get your tickets, so you should visit Push dance.org forward slash festival. So again, <laughs> welcome, Risa. Happy to have you joining us. It's been a minute. Yeah. Hi, Wanda. It's great to be back. Thank you for bringing me on the show. Yeah, yeah. And so we were talking a little bit beforehand um, about the uh, some of the behind-the-scenes information about Push Dance uh, Company and uh, Push Fest. And and you were saying that you actually um, you had to like uh, take off a year. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah, yeah. Because you have a little one now who uh, just made his entrance around that time, right? That is true. I have an eleven-month-old son, and uh, last year I took a hiatus because I was in the hospital delivering <laughs> my son, and. <laughs> It was definitely, um, you know, wonderful. It was, you know, beautiful birth, and he's a wonderful child, and everybody at the festival, um, you know, they just kind of took over, and it went well, so it was really great, and um, again, this is coming up, and it just seems like for my life, everything happens in September, (laughs) so now we're planning his first birthday party. (laughs) 
<laughs> wow, that is so awesome. Congratulations on that account as well. Wow. So tell us about um, this this uh, iteration of the festival, and maybe we could start with your Mothership 3. Yeah, let's, let's do it. So as I took a hiatus, so did Mothership, and I was working on a multi-year project called Cold Lining that filled in for it. Because I wanted to, I wanted to be there to see the final installment of the trilogy, and Mothership, um, the whole trilogy, the undertone. Well, not actually the undertone. The the actual um, feature of this is Afrofuturism, and for those um, who are wondering what Afrofuturism is, or or you know, or you think you may know, um, it's it's evolving, but it's an aesthetic of African culture through the lens of African diaspora. And that can include pop culture like Missy Elliott or movies like Black Panther. Um, But it can also include art and science and technology. So it's not always science fiction as um, I think, you know, I, when I was coming into it, I, I thought it was. It's a broad reimagining of our future by altering um, storylines from our past. So I just wanted to, you know, just kind of start there and then talk a little bit, you know, about how I needed three dance pieces to <laughs> to really explore Afrofuturism. So my first piece looked at the past. And so I altered um, a narrative from the past where there's this um, dystopian, I guess, group of people who didn't know anything about slavery. And all they knew was the founding fathers. And it was so bizarre that they even dressed up um, like the founding fathers Um, And then the second one, I looked at the future. And in the future, um, there was no um, history of colonization. So colonization didn't exist in the future, just dealt with um, how another society dealt with um, just indigenous culture and how it was very prevalent in everything that they did. So there's a lot of spirituality. Um, there's a lot of honoring the ancestors and the elders. So it was a little bit different. And this piece is going to look at the present. So I'm a little nervous about that, but <laughs> mm. it's going to look at what's going on in 2019. Mm. Oh, that sounds really intriguing. Yeah. Okay. Hmm. Um, same of the, some of the, yeah, some of the same um, company members um, are um, going to be joining you in this this particular um, iteration of the work. Yes. Yes. Which is very exciting. I'm glad that um, I have about three folks that um, have been through one, two, and now three. So that's very exciting. And mm-hmm. we always bring on two apprentices in the company, so we always have new people. 
And then we have two new company members joining us. Yeah, nice. And, and who are they? Uh, the two new company members are Joshua Till and Niara Hardister. Um, if everyone um, has seen our poster, if or if anyone has seen our poster, um, she is the one that's um, on the poster. She's our our um, model, I should say. Yeah. <laughs> so I mean, it was really interesting. And as I was looking at how to present the present, I had to go back to Octavia Butler's novels like Kindred. Um, nice. But I also saw that you know. The reason why she put date characters in her novel, we got this question um, from an editor. An editor asked, oh, I'm going to paraphrase it, but he asked her something along the lines of, like, if you have aliens in your novels, why do you need black people in them? (laughs) Wow. Seriously. Seriously, yeah. She made it a point to put black people in her novels to make them characters that mm-hmm. interface or interacted with alien beings. And so um, in my piece, what I decided to do was I told everybody, I was like, you know what? I'm going to make all the black people in the piece aliens. And at first my group was like, what? And I was like, yeah, because when I was dancing, I played the slave. I played the strong-willed black woman. I played the angry black woman, but I never got to play – a mythical creature. I never got to be a sylph or a fairy or, you know what I mean? It's like, I really Mm -hmm. wanted to see what it was like to make a piece where um, we come from another planet to enlighten the people on earth. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Oh, nice. (laughs) That's great. That's really great. Yeah. And also, um, I want to allow you an opportunity to, like, name your other company members, not just the uh, the new folks that are joining the company this this uh, this season. Sure. Returning with us is Ashley Gill. She's our rehearsal director. We have Gal Safon. Uh, we have Courtney Hope. And our apprentices are Jean-Paul Alejandro and Annie Aguilar. Mm-hmm. Cool, cool. Yeah. And and you are an interdisciplinary artist best known for your choreography and social activism in the San Francisco Bay Area. Um, you founded Push Dance Company you, uh, to instill your deep interest in little known or untold stories seen in the public eye. And you've got all kinds of accolades um, from Dance Spirit Magazine. They say your work is reflective contemporary choreography. Um, that you've presented your work, and you've also presented your works in over 50 venues across the United States. And recent highlights include Dance St. Louis, CIS uh, Spring to Dance, uh, Lynx Hall in Chicago, First Center for the Arts at Georgia Tech. A lot of hanging out in the in the uh, southern southern part of the country. <laughs> uh, Joyce Soho in New York City, uh, Washington Ensemble Theater, Evolve Dance Festival in New York, Los Angeles Theater Center and Black Choreographers Festival, where I think I saw you recently as um, a, um, are you, do you call it mentor um, uh, choreographer? Um, when you, yeah. Uh, another, okay, yeah. And, and that is um, true. Young artist. Yeah. Right, yeah, and you were um uh it was the um um Irie um dance company. 
um, choreographer, drawing blank right now. Ah, who's the choreographer for Irie? Oh, yeah, Sherry Hill. Yeah, Sherry Hill, right, because she just had a um, the full-length piece, and I was not in town, and I missed it. I'm like, ah, darn. I know, that <laughs> that was an amazing piece. At least, you know, what I saw when I was mentoring her is about displacement, and she had a yes. really great on it. I loved it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was really, really good at that, you know, really nice, funky kind of space in the middle. Like, you don't expect to have a dance theater company right there where it is in San Francisco, <laughs> right, right, yeah. you know, yeah, walking distance from Powell, Powell Street Bart, and it's just so lovely. It's like, uh, I'm really happy that um, that uh, Black Choreographers Festival, um, you know, that they, that they have, you know, art, like, within the community spaces, which is mm-hmm. very nice. Yeah, that is Kendra and Laura have a really good vision uh, for that company, as as you do. And um, you guest taught uh, at uh, ACT, Santa Clara University, UC Davis, Sacramento State, Stanford University, San Francisco State University, Alonzo King Lines Dance Center, First Presents, San Jose Dance Theater, Marin School, and many others. I thought I was going to see your alma mater in there um, that you might have taught there too, but I guess not yet. Um, I have, yeah. Oh, um, oh yeah. Okay. I don't know if you're done with the list, but I also wanted to mention that um, Adriana Thompson, the director of SoSkin, mm. they have um, a show going up this weekend. She flew us out to Colorado for 10 days, mm. and she did a mm. partnership with a group called Dance Initiative. So we were in the Rocky Mountains um, mm. this year to develop um, the project that I mentioned before, code lining. So I just wanted to yes. also make sure that I put that on the list because it was a wonderful experience to bond with Mm. your company members. You know, you learn a lot about people when you're together in the woods for 10 days. (laughs) Yeah. um, I just want to make sure I mentioned that too. (laughs) Oh, certainly. Certainly. Yeah. Yeah. And um, yeah, that's, that's not in your list. (laughs) Yeah. And and I want to let everyone know I'm reading from pushdance.org forward slash Risa, you know, um, she is the woman. Of the hour and the minute and the second, <laughs> and you've got lots of grants and yeah, I I um I really like it that you've done you know work in public space. I mean, I think I remember seeing you you had some work in um, the Oakland Museum of California. Um, you've had work at Museum of the African Diaspora. Uh, I mean, I really it's just like really great to see like oh well she's here like right here out in the open. <laughs> Oh, but it was really great, you know. Yeah, and then I think you've also um, collaborated with um, uh, Joanna Haygood's um, Zako Dance Company, right? That is true, yeah. Joanna um, and I, I think I started in 2007 collaborating with her. And mm-hmm. um, she's out in the Bayview um, district. I, um, after the festival, will be returning to the Bayview Opera House, and that has been a place for um, a lot of innovation for my work. They've been really generous with their space, and we're rehearsing there now. And mm-hmm. we're going to be developing a new piece together. Um, Push and Bayview Opera House are going to be working on a piece on the painter Archibald Motley, who was oh, really yeah. popular 
No, I love this work. It's so it's so like rich in color and playful. Exactly. Yeah, he was wonderful with depicting African Americans in the nighttime scenes, and mm-hmm. he he really um, you know represented the lights and the colors beautifully. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Was it was it Harlem Renaissance or or other eras? You know, I think it was other eras, but okay. I think that some of his work became very popular during that time. But I'm pretty sure mm-hmm. he was a painter during that time. But mm-hmm. I think that his work spanned over a couple of different um, years. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You've done a lot of work in Bayview um, in, in various capacities. I think you did some things around. Uh, with youth, uh, I think storytelling and film. Um, you've collaborated with some of the uh, uh, organizations there in in Bayview um, besides Zako, if I'm remembering correctly. On um, some of your other um, works that you uh, choreographed. That's true. Um, it started off with um, mixed messages. We were working mm-hmm. in my group with Third Street Youth Center and Clinic. And that turned into looking at the um, naval shipyard and the cleanup there, um, the toxic cleanup. So we started to evolve it into environmental justice. Um, and I think, you know, overall, I've been kind of like quiet about um, my art because I always, think that I have a lot of time to develop it and I never really um, you know scream or shout you know I'm doing this over here (laughs) but um, Mm -hmm. it's just because sometimes pieces take about two years to actually develop and research so once it's finally going up it's like oh shoot I probably should have told people that I was doing this like two years ago but (laughs) (laughs) yes yes Oh, right, right, yeah. Well, I'm glad that um, I found out about, you know, Push Fest um, before it happened this year. And, uh, yeah, Mary's really a great partner with you. And so, yeah, tell us more about Push Fest, uh, especially, you know, um, some of your world premieres and each, you know, each if, each performance, you, like you have these um, uh, four programs, right? Like that's, wow, it's like it's going to be really a jam-packed weekend. It is, and we went from two programs to four programs this year. Um, but let me tell everybody <laughs> what Push Fest is, the who, what, when, where. So Push Fest mm-hmm. is a dance festival that um, works with or presents emerging and mid-career choreographers that come from different dance genres. So you can have Katak dance, classical Indian dance, next to a hip-hop dancer, next to a ballet dancer, next to a modern dancer. And it's kind of um, unique in that sense because a lot of dance festivals focus on a specific genre, and we um, decided to open it up. So it's going to be at the ODC Theater, and there's going to be four programs. There's two programs on our Sunday program at 4.30 and 7.30. And the other two programs, opening night is on Friday at 8 p.m. and Saturday, so at 8 p.m. And you can get your tickets, and it's 
I mean, it's going to be an amazing show. And each year it sells out. And I always tell people, well, if you just buy ahead of time, you don't have to worry about lines and you don't have to be disappointed when you get there. So we're telling everybody to visit our website at www.pushdance.org slash festival and get your tickets now. So we have over 20 plus choreographers and over about 50 performers in the show. And we have folks coming from New York, like Jamal Jackson, who's returning. He was um, one of our Push Fest Audience Choice Award winners. So the audience voted for his piece, and he's an award winner. He's coming back on Saturday. We also have Jocelyn Mathis-Reed, who is one of our um, artists participating in a mentorship program with co-director... KT Nelson of ODC. So Mm. that is huge. I mean, KT Nelson is an international choreographer, and she's mentoring three of our artists. The other two are Perry Trono and Bumi Patel. And Perry will be in Program A, and Bumi Patel will be doing an installation piece in Program B. So that's exciting. And I've got to visit the rehearsals. We have video up on our Facebook event page if you want to check out what they've been working with with KT. Um, We also have coming back to us from Ohio State, um, we have Nyama McCarthy-Brown, and she is a San Francisco native. So she's coming back to us to do a piece with her son. And it's going to be amazing. And that's program B. And I'm not finished yet. Still, we have people. <laughs> we have another artist from Indiana, Kathleen Hickey, who will be joining us. And our local artists also include Jennifer Perfilio. You don't want to miss her. Sierra Don. You don't want to miss her. Megan Horowitz from San Jose. Tony Nguyen coming all the way from the Sacramento area. So we're very pleased with the artists we've got. We um, also have some favorites that are known locally here, Yoyawi Kambara and dancers. And we have David Herrera Performance Company. So I wouldn't miss this show. What it is is that for these artists, Push Fest is a time for us to reconnect and all come together. So the spirit on stage is just lifted off the floor when everybody's dancing, everybody is just so happy to once again be together and in the room for each other. We also focus on marginalized voices and those voices that probably haven't been presented um, on a stage like this or within the public light. So we bring all of those folks together and we bring it all to Push Fest and it happens once a year. So I'll just say it again. Don't be the one that missed it this year. <laughs> yeah. And tell us about, um, I, I mentioned earlier that um, you have a uh, uh, a world premiere by Gerald Cassell. And, um, yeah, tell, tell us about this, this work in the choreographer. This is actually a really great story because Gerald Cassell and I, um, I knew who Jerry Cassell was. He was a choreographer out of Juilliard um, in New York. He 
taught at Juilliard. He had his own dance company, and he came um, to teach over at UC Santa Cruz. He lives in San Francisco, and this is where his company is based. So he brought me in to do a year-long program called Dancing Around Race, where we just focused on race and racial equity and inequity here in the Bay Area. So when I was looking at Push Lab for this year, um, typically I ask company members to make a piece, but I had already asked everybody that was returning and my new company members. I didn't want to, like, you know, bring that on them too soon. So I asked Gerald. I was like, Gerald, what do you think about doing Push Lab? So he's our first um, guest choreographer outside of Push to make a piece, and he has 10 amazing dancers. Um, two of our apprentices will be performing in the piece, and Joshua Till, our company member, will be joining them as a guest performer. Mm-hmm. And the dancers um, only have about six days to put together a piece. And it was clear that by the first day, this was going to be um, an amazing work. So he's going to be working without sound, mm-hmm. so no music. And he's going to be um, creating this work for the stage at ODC Theater. We're going to have a showing tonight at Alonzo King Lines Dance Center. So this is perfect timing to be on the show. And that's at Mm -hmm. 7 p.m. If Mm -hmm. anyone wants to, you know, get a preview. Um, gorgeous work. And I love the way that Gerald works. It's very collaborative. It's very just kind of like um, organic. There's nothing that, you know, he doesn't sort of like generate. He does it through writing, through discussing, and through those types of devices. Um, he creates works for for different bodies, for different dance backgrounds, and it really all kind of melds together. So I'm glad that I took the chance <laughs> to ask somebody, you know, to ask somebody else to sort of, you know, like come in and help change the process or, you know, what I had done in the past. So I'm very glad that I did. And I think Gerald was the perfect person um, to do that. Mm-hmm. Wow. Yeah, that is really awesome. Yeah, I'm really looking forward to that. Yeah, because your Push Fest is the kind of um, event, artistic event, that you really have to just dedicate your whole weekend to because you can't just do one evening <laughs> because everything is all, is all different. So you either have to make a choice and just say, oh, man, I'm going to have to miss this night and that one. Um, <laughs> or or you just say, okay, this is what I'm doing this weekend. And, and and definitely, you know, one won't be disappointed because I did it one weekend. I don't know what iteration it was. And it was just fabulous. It's because where, where ODC is is a great place to hang out. <laughs> you know, there are things you can do. You can go sit in the park and just relax. Um, or you can go to one of the wonderful little, um, you know, shops and have some coffee because right there on the corner, there's a cafe, right, that's connected to the theater building. And the, True. Yeah. You don't even yeah. have to go far. 
Right, right. Yeah, yeah. It's really, really nice. Yeah. So I was wondering, we have like a few minutes uh, left, and I was wondering if you could just talk about just uh, just your aesthetic and um, and and you know, wow, um, with Mother Mothership Three, wow, and you're in the present now, and there's so much happening. Oh my goodness. And wow, just just talk about you know, just sort of your art making and and how you come to it, and and because it's definitely valuable and it's definitely important. Um, one can see that. In, in your community work, you know, trying to, you know, impact the lives of children so that they can also have this vehicle to tell story. I appreciate that. And, yeah, the process um, is one where I just look at who's in the room with me and how can I give them a sense of agency and ownership over the work. Um In Mothership 3, I had fully intended to create a piece in my signature style of showing how I move dancers across the stage and how they walk and how they glide. And then as I was in rehearsal, um, I had my son with me, and he's so young. You know, he was just kind of like, Mommy, come down here with me, sit and crawl and get on the ground. So I took all of that movement and I put it on the floor. So Mm -hmm. the company is moving around on the ground, you know, sometimes without legs or arms. It's just like torso rolling. And, you know, it's like how do we, you know, crawl over our back? How do we roll over on our side? How do we find our side body, our front body, our, you know, posterior And how do we create a dance? So being in the room, you know, with these artists, they they can do it. I mean, they're professionals and they're just like, yeah, I can turn this walking phrase into a floor phrase. And, you know, in my creative mind, and what is that? That's like my imagination. Um, This went beyond what I thought I could actually create. So Mothership 3 is definitely going to look different, not just from the other two, but from anything really that I've ever made. But Mm -hmm. it's really um, surprising, even myself, what I could do. And Mm -hmm. it's just a gorgeous piece of work. And hopefully, you know, um, the audience isn't like, what's this? Who made this? (laughs) Like, Mm -hmm. oh, Rachel, okay. Right. So some yeah. of my aesthetic is that it's just, you know, what's going on? Breathe life into it and, you know, honor the the sense of risk and chance and mm-hmm. not having control, um, innovation, and just let the piece kind of just, you know, speak for itself, develop on its own. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Well, thank you, Raisa. It's always wonderful to speak to you. Congratulations on, you know, your son's one-year um, evolution around the sun. And congratulations on Push Fest, um, home season, um, 14th home season, and just sixth anniversary. And, uh, yeah, yeah, I'm really looking forward to seeing um, 
Mothership 3, and all of the other work that's coming up. I'm not going to be able to make it tonight, but that's really exciting for those who can get to, you know, Alonzo King's Lines a Dance Company to see the uh, the preview of this world premiere. That's going to be really awesome from Gerald Cassell. So, yeah, um, people should definitely visit pushdance.org forward slash festival and go to the Facebook page to see um I guess video of some of the performances to sort of whet your appetite and see what's coming up. So again, thank you so much for joining us this morning. Thank you so much, Wanda, and thanks everybody for listening in. Everybody have a beautiful day. All right, you too. Peace and blessings. All right. Bye bye. Bye. Ah, good morning. Um, Soya Rose, Soya Rose, um, are you with us? Yes, I am. And, hi, Wanda. Good morning. Hi. Good morning. Is uh, uh, Darlene uh, Jane, is she with you as well? I don't hear Darlene. Okay. I, no, I meant like in the room with you. Like you're, oh, she's no, right she's calling you. in also. Oh, she's coming to follow you separately. Okay. All righty. So let's start with you. Um, <laughs> so Sonia Rose uh, is a sculptor, sculpture installation and social practice artist. She's a graduate of Williams College in Massachusetts and currently lives and works in the San Francisco Bay Area. Um, uh, when Darlene Jane uh, Oni uh, Esola joins us, um, uh, she will join the conversation uh, because uh, there is a wonderful uh, work that has gone up, uh, one of Sawyer's new exhibitions, collaborations, and it's called Counting the Hours, Art, Data, and the Untold Stories of Women's Work, new art exhibition at by Sawyer Rose and the Carrying Stones Project at Code and Canvas, 151 Portrayal Avenue in San Francisco. And it's up September 19th, so not quite yet, but put in your books, through November 2nd. And the gallery is open Tuesdays and Thursdays from 1 to 6 and Saturday from 12 to 3 and by appointment. And it's a free admission gallery. Oh, wow. And here is um, Darlene Jane Oni Esla. Am I pronouncing Hi. all of those names correctly? Uh, Darlene, Darlene Jane, Jane Oni Esla. Oni. Ah, okay. Sorry about that. <laughs> <laughs> no worries. Yeah, so Sawyer is uh, in the studio. You all can say hi to each other if you like. <laughs> hey, Darlene. Hi, Sawyer. Good morning. <laughs> yeah, and uh, Darlene Jane is an Oakland-based exhibiting and teaching artist. And, wow, I just love, I love the title, The Carrying Stones Project. Wow, sounds really heavy. But then when you see it, it's like uh, it just looks so Beautiful. Oh my goodness. It's such a beautiful concept. Um, you know, sort of looking at at women's work, um and and the untold stories. I was thinking about, you know, the um the great storyteller uh Stubbs Turkle, right? And and he mm-hmm. um, you know, he told a lot of stories of the working people. Um, but I don't know, I mean there were some women in the stories, but not a whole lot because women's <laughs> work was not necessarily uh, it wasn't necessarily documented in the same way that men's work, you know, was and, and still is, you know, to a great extent. Mm-hmm. You know, that's why whenever we see things like, you know, films and books come out, we're like, oh, wow, really? She was, A woman was there? She was there? Like, yeah. <laughs> yeah. 
Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, um, so um, why don't you tell us, uh, sorry, a little bit about, you know, Counting the Hours exhibition and how you came up with the idea for it. Okay, well, so the Counting the Hours exhibition is a continuation of the work I've been doing with the Carrying Stones Project, all on the topic okay. of women's work in equity. Mm. Um, it's got a couple new facets, though, for the new show. Um, so there's two parts, really, to this show. There's the large-scale installation pieces, like the one I made mm -hmm. about Darlene's work life. Yeah. And so what I do for those is, I find a woman with a really interesting work story. And mm -hmm. I like that you brought up stories because I do feel like the project is very much about storytelling, the history mm -hmm. of how women live and what they do. Um, so I developed a timekeeping app where my participants like Darlene can track the hours that they spend doing paid labor and unpaid labor and then anything else that they do, which typically turns out to be not many other things, unfortunately. <laughs> and then I translate that data into a large-scale installation sculpture. So they're really, mm -hmm. like, usually modular and color-coded. So you can actually read, like, oh, wow, okay, she worked 14 hours in a row and then had one hour off. <laughs> and <laughs> then what I do is once the sculpture is built, I – take a photographic portrait of the subject lifting and carrying the sculpture of her hours. So oh. like literally shouldering her burden in, yeah. in like a real physical way. Mm -hmm. um, and then alongside that, when I display it, I actually like tell the woman's history so you can understand what it's all about. Um, mm -hmm. And um, the, so those are the installation pieces. And in the Counting the Hours show, I'm doing a new thing too, where I'm going to have mm -hmm. some wall works that are also data visualizations, but they cover uh, broader conceptual topics that you hear in the news and maybe don't understand, like, you know, what's the wage gap really about? Or like, you know, data about women in leadership, you know, that you might not understand or, you know, have any reference point for. Some kind of, it's all kind of educational in the end. Mm-hmm. Wow. Wow. Yeah. Wow. So Darlene, um wow, so yeah. like when you lifted, you know, this this work, you know, and all these hours, like, wow, this it really makes it tangible. How does that oh wait actually when you huh. saw it and then you picked it up. How does that feel? Oh my goodness. <laughs> well, you know, it really makes um the things that are intangible in a way, the amount of time that you spend doing something um, really literally obviously take shape um, and take form. And mm -hmm. I think that a lot of the times, like, you know, we kind of end our days or at least I end my day and I'm like, I'm so tired and I don't even really feel like I did something. But having mm -hmm. tracked and really looked at the actual hard data and then the visualization of it, it's like, yeah, I'm literally carrying around this stuff pretty much all day. Um, mm -hmm. So it was really kind of yeah. interesting. Yeah, yeah. So it puts a whole another mm -hmm. um, another meaning on you know that that famous book that was looking at I think men in war the things they carried right. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah. Like wow, like you know people tell you to you know like take it off of yourself you know just 
you know, once you realize you're carrying something, just if you know, unless you don't, unless you can want to continue carrying, just sort of take it off and put it to the side. But that's not always possible to remove the the this this constraint that you might not have chosen. But how do you un you know how do you set it aside if this is your livelihood or this is something that you are emotionally vested in? Um, mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So when you actually saw this uh, this 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 work, you know, commodified mm-hmm. and 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 you know made things that were intangible, like time is intangible. But we know we can look mm-hmm. at our watch, like okay, I've been here. Four hours more than I was supposed to be here, and the time stopped. You know, like I am not getting paid for this, but um, <laughs> right. I felt a need to to stay here and maybe help. You know, this particular student or whatever. Yeah, I was just wondering, um, just sort of uh, how that. You know, now that you you have this this artwork, have you reevaluated how you spend your time and what you give your time to? That's a really good question. I think that it's definitely made me think. Um, I, when I see the actual piece mm-hmm. and performance, I think that it's going to, like, slowly, you know, think these things, the the way that we carry this weight, the, our ideas about labor and, like, what women should be doing with our time is something mm-hmm. that is more often than not inherited. And so, mm-hmm. you know, it takes generations to kind of think like, you know, you should be spending this amount of time on other people. You should be spending this amount of time at work. And, you know, only at the end of the day, you get this amount of time. Um, So I think that change is not going to happen, unfortunately, very quickly. But, you know, now that I have my mind open to it, um, kind of slipping in what things I can redistribute the weight, right? Because there's only a certain amount of time in the day, there's responsibilities, and I think it's um, like about weight redistribution. If we're mm-hmm. going to carry the metaphor um, even further, yeah, yeah. Wow, how interesting. So, so yeah, uh, what attracted you to Darlene's story? Um, and um, and for our audience, since since the exhibit's not open yet, and could you maybe tell them sort of how you interpreted it in in the sculpted piece? Sure. So, um, Darlene and I have known each other um, for a few years, and I ran into her at an artist talk. And I'm never shy about you know, looking for new participants for my project. So I'm always like, "Oh, like, what are you doing for work these days?" Uh, and you know, so I saw Darlene, and we were just chitty chatting, and. You know, I said so, and she told me this unbelievable story of all these things that she was involved in, <laughs> many of them like community volunteerism, which um, I put that under um, unpaid labor because it's like caretaking of the larger community. Mm-hmm. Um, so I put that sort of in the caretaker responsibility section. Anyway, she told me this unbelievable <laughs> story of all these different things that she had done and was doing and was planning to do. And I was like, oh, my gosh, I've struck gold. <laughs> and I said, i, I got to hear your story for my project. And she was game. So um, we took it from there. And um, the way that I have visualized it, I could just, you know, kind of paint a picture. It's a little hard to explain installation art in words. But 
So um, as I said, all the pieces are modular. So I got her data. Oh, and I should say that I do a really comprehensive interview with all my participants. So I can really get mm-hmm. like, not just, it's not just about numbers. It's about the, who they are and tell like storytelling to build bridges to people who maybe, you know, never even thought about this topic before. It needs to be really human. So, mm-hmm. so I did this whole long interview with her, got sort of the flavor of what it's like to work as Darlene. And then um, I kind of like researched the person. I totally like stalk their social media, like find out what their favorite <laughs> color is, like anything I can find out about them to make it more about them. I do that. And so what I came up with for Darlene was I have um, these fabric sacks and they hang suspended from these poles and inside the gold ones, the gold ones represent her paid labor. um, There's a stone as if she's collected her payment for that hour. And inside Mm -hmm. the silver ones, there's no stone. It looks like it's sort of fallen out onto the floor. So those are her uncollected hours. Mm. And, um, the way I'm hanging it is in sequential order of how she reported it to me. So again, you can actually read like, this is what Darlene did with these days. Um, so, so that's what the piece is going to look like. Mm. And, you know, it's got little bits and pops of, of, you know, Darlene flavor. It's got, you know, close <laughs> to her favorite color. It's got, you know, like I, vaguely reference like her heritage in different aesthetic parts of it so it's, it's really fun to mm. it's like putting together a little puzzle about a person it's really fun mm, nice nice yeah so um Darlene um yes. uh, tell us what is your work and because I know you're an artist too um uh, are you a visual yeah. artist as well uh, mm-hmm. I am. I am a visual visual artist. Um, a lot of my work recently um, has to do with part of my family's um, kind of journey through the African diaspora, through mm-hmm. um, through anecdotes and family histories, and using like Twenty Three and Me, um, you know, a oh. research. So nice. that's been something I've been working on, um, and kind of like the shift and just you know all sorts of things with that I do primarily printmaking but also with mm-hmm. a lot of drawing and painting um, I am a teaching artist so mm-hmm. I split my time between my practice and teaching uh, TK through fifth grade art oh, wow. <laughs> which is which is really great um, mm-hmm. yeah and on other things I mean as as Sawyer referenced I, I kind of got my hands in a lot of pots um, it keeps mm-hmm. me busy, but I feel like there's so many kind of opportunities to help change this world that we're living in, um, and so mm-hmm. that's kind of really important to me. Yeah. So oh, yeah, that's me. Nice. <laughs> yeah, that sounds awesome. So um, I know there are some special events happening around the exhibit, but before that, um, tell us a 23andMe story. Um, a twenty three and me story. Um, you know, I think yes, that yeah, an ancestry story. <laughs> yeah, no, I think that it's interesting um to me to see how people how many people different types of people are referenced um with on that platform. Um, 
you know, my mother's from Trinidad, my dad's from Nigeria, and so just oh, okay. looking at the way uh, in not so long ago, four generations back, um, to see how my relatives were basically, you know, stolen and kind of taken all over the world. Um, you know, there are people that are closely, slightly distantly related to me, fourth and fifth cousins, you know, that I never would have been able to pick out on the street um, that are just literally all over the United States um, and mm-hmm. have gone back generations. And, you know, that really only points to one thing. Um, it's like one of those things that we don't have a tendency to talk about because it seems indelicate. But, you know, especially when you're looking at things, um, and it's like kind of like a really important tie-in, when you're looking at things in an abstract, it feels one way, and there's a tendency to put like emotion on it. But when you're looking at data and facts, it's kind of hard to argue, right? You know, so for Mm -hmm. my parents, knowing where they came from and then just seeing that, you know, I have this like fourth or fifth cousin that's, you know, 100% Irish that lives, you know, in Minnesota, you know, it really can only be, it it really only points to one thing. So it's, to me, that's been kind of a fascinating way to put, like, the middle passage um, and make it real for my own life and then Mm -hmm. try to tell a story that's inclusive and, you know, really thinks about all of the different repercussions of that. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. yeah. Wow. Wow. Really, really cool. Um, yeah. Yeah. So, um, sorry. Are these these really uh, in depth interviews? Are they like playing playing in like um, uh, I guess are they are they playing on on some monitor within the exhibit so people get to, if they want to just spend time with you know the character that inspired the work they can uh, or even at yeah. some no i i don't record them i don't i don't oh. preserve them in any way they're um mm-hmm. they're phone interviews and they're just for me and a lot of times okay. they get very personal and that's why mm-hmm. um mm-hmm. because i'm really you know like digging down into like what's it like you know if you have a partner what's that like you know mm-hmm. um i've heard some very deeply personal stories um, which mm-hmm. I'm glad that they've shared with me, but um, typically at some point there's content that shouldn't <laughs> shouldn't be uh, public. But that's great, you know, okay. because it helps me mm-hmm. do what I need to do. Yeah, wow! It sounds like you're an um, anthropologist, archaeologist of of the soul spirit. You know, I always wanted to be an archaeologist. <laughs> so I guess I came around to it eventually. Uh, definitely, yeah. definitely. <laughs> it is dig- yeah. it is like digging for treasure, though. It really is. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Right, right, yeah. So, so tell us about some of the special programs. Um, you know, like, is there going to be like a opening, you know, event so people can meet the artists, meet yourself, and meet the other uh, women whose work, whose lives you mind, you know, for the pieces. Yes. So um, there's an opening reception, and that's on Thursday, September 19th from 6 to Mm -hmm. 9 at Code and Canvas in San Francisco. Okay. Okay. And you'll be able to meet me, but more interestingly, you will be able to meet the project participants who are able to make it because I use women from all over the United States to get Mm 
oh. you know, a more mm-hmm. robust, diverse sampling of how different people mm-hmm. work. Um, okay. But, yeah, the, the ones who are able to make it, the ones who are local will be there. And something that's really exciting that's just sort of been um, getting started cooking is um, – Katie Wong from Raw Dance Company in San Francisco approached Mm -hmm. me about doing a collaboration. She wanted to do a movement piece with her dancers Mm -hmm. that somehow interprets, you know, women's labor and, you know, the topics that I'm discussing in my work. So Mm -hmm. I have only seen some video outtakes from their practices, but that's happening at 7:30, and it's just going to sort of like organically grow out of the crowd, and then all of a sudden there's going to be this dance piece. So I think that's going to be really beautiful, and it's mm-hmm. not something I've ever done before. So uh, I'm really excited about that. Mm-hmm. And um, the other thing that's exciting is I'm going to have a public participatory event called Crafting Balance, and mm-hmm. that's going to be during. Um, San Francisco Arts Band Open Studios Weekend, number three, mm-hmm. um, which is it's October 26th and 27th. So because my project is about, you know, shining a light on these issues that maybe people haven't thought about, I like to come up with as many ways um, to different ways to tell the stories I can. And one of the ways that I really enjoy is doing what's called social practice events, which in social practice mm-hmm. art is just where you involve the community and, you know, people get to like get in there themselves and do something. Mm-hmm. So um, the, the social practice event I'm going to do for this one is I'm going to build uh, like eight foot tall weaving loom and um, have people give me their data. I have this sort of little data collection kiosk. So you kind of ballpark your data. You're going to put together a color-coded rope, string sort of, you know, thing, and then weave it into this community co-created, uh, like, tapestry of everybody's work hours. Mm-hmm. So by the end, we'll have this record of every, you know, the work hours of everybody who's come through the show. Mm-hmm. And then that'll be, you know, in the end, a standalone piece. So I oh. like <laughs> I like the social practice things to be really fun and approachable and touchable. And so like this giant loom, I'm making it huge because I want two people to have to operate it at the same time. So, you know, you have to do it together. It starts a dialogue. You go, oh, I see what you're doing and you see what <laughs> I'm doing. Um, and so, you know, they're always a laugh, but there's that serious side of like, yeah, but, you know, look what we're really talking about. <laughs> oh, wow. That sounds really great. Ah, yeah, yeah. So on your website, um, the art that we're looking at, is that from one of the iterations of the series that you're doing? Or is is this, yeah, because I, I looked so at your the- website. Mm-hmm. Sure. If you're on the home page, you're seeing mm-hmm. the Force of Na- Nature exhibition, which was okay. my last right. exhibition. And okay. if you're on the mm-hmm. Counting the Hours page, like the new page for the show, mm-hmm. you're seeing yeah. little teasers from the new show. Okay. Yeah. Right. Yeah, I was looking at Counting the Hours teasers. Okay. Yeah, that, yeah. those are the teasers yeah. from the new show. Okay. Yeah, it looks looks kind of heavy, you know, like. 
Does does Deborah feel heavy? Um, <laughs> I'm talking to both of you now. <laughs> so, like physically heavy or emotionally heavy? Because the answer is yes. Any way you want to take it. Yeah. <laughs> the answer is yes on both accounts. Um, yeah. Um, physically, they are actually very large and very heavy, and they take up a lot of space, which is all mm-hmm. intentional because, mm-hmm. you know, women are often, um, you know, taught not to take up space, not to make noise, not to draw attention mm-hmm. to themselves. Um and you, if possible, keep working for free <laughs> at the same time. <laughs> so I'm kind of trying to turn that on its head. You know, like the pieces are large. The pieces are bold. We're going to take up some space. We're going to make some noise and talk about these issues. Mm-hmm. So, you know, in that regard, yes, physically heavy. Emotionally heavy, yeah. You know, like I said, I, I hear a lot of stories. You know, I kind of pick up on people because they have an interesting work story But then, you know, when you dig down, everybody's got these really robust, intense life experiences, and they usually come out when we're talking. Um, And so I'm I'm honored, usually, you know, that people feel strongly enough about participating in my project that they'll share those things with me so that I can, you know, really give an accurate representation of who they are. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And and what what makes you, you know, uh, what made you want to, to start? Uh, you know, this kind of project and how, how, how many iterations have there been um, in it so far? <laughs> and do you have it, is it like mapped out or do you, like, do you know what's next? I know somewhat what's next. Oh. Um, you know, I always have a few people in the pipeline that I wasn't able to get to this time, but that I'm really uh-huh. excited about for next time. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, yeah, I, I have an idea of a few people I'm going to do next, um, mm-hmm. but I guess we'll see how this show goes. How I came to this idea, I came to this idea when my children were, I have two children, they were very small, I had a preschooler and a toddler, and and I have a partner, um, but, you know, he he was just kind of off doing his thing, you know, like sort of very 1950s, he was making the money, and I was at home with the kids, and I was going crazy, and he was kind of going crazy, too, it was a lot, Um but I, I, you know, at one point I counted and I was working like 16 hour days and then, you know, waking up with a toddler in the middle of the night. So I started writing mm-hmm. down the data. And so I joke that um, my working title for the project at the start was I'm going to draw my husband a picture. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so I actually drew him out a data visualization <laughs> of what it takes to, you know, do caretaking for these two small people. And then he mm-hmm. really got it. He really saw me. I think for mm-hmm. the first time since we had the mm-hmm. kids and I thought, okay, you know, that really works. So I started talking to women like at school and in my community, like, Hey, so like I said, I'm not shy. Like, so <laughs> your work life, <laughs> tell me about that. Like, is this sustainable? Do you feel like you get support from your partner? And I was hearing the same story over and over. So I thought, mm-hmm. all right, like I'm kind of a research nerd and proud of it. Mm-hmm. So I said, all right, like, I think I've got something here. Let me dig into the numbers, see what kind of research I can find. And once you start looking, it's just there's research from every walk of life, every profession, you know, women, female identifying individuals, you know, it's, there's so much data. So Mm -hmm. I just, Mm -hmm. I just got busy at that point. (laughs) Right. Yeah. Yeah. 
Wow. Well, I'm happy you got busy because definitely, you know, these stories that um, that women are sharing with you, you know, like Darlene Jane. Thank you so much, Darlene. <laughs> of course. Um, and, and others, you know, the other women. And we're kind of out of time, but I was wondering, uh, Sawyer, if you could, like, give us the names of the other 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 women, the other storytellers who's, um, you know, who collaborated with you in this work for this particular iteration um, of, of your of your um your series uh sure. this one, so um, counting hours yeah no care. yeah so yeah, there counting are, hours in the carrying stones project mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. um there are four women who have their okay. you know who have the large scale sculptures Darlene is one um thank you Darlene. <laughs> um renee stout who is this amazing african-american artist who lives in washington dc who um, I met when I was her liaison to the uh, to her Lifetime Achievement Award, and then I asked her if she'd be in the project, and she said yes, and I was so thrilled. So her story is <laughs> fascinating. Um, this woman, America, who is she lives in L.A. and she's a stunt woman and a stunt director, and an actress and a mom of a two-year-old. So that is a fascinating, convoluted story of That's kind of all the same thing. <laughs> <laughs> and then finally, um, there's this woman, Loita Robles, who lives in Chico, and she she is a dentist. And mm. um, but the fascinating thing about her story is how she went to school in San Francisco and commuted back and forth to Chico, which is like thirty three and a half hours. And like mm-hmm. FaceTime parented her kids the whole time that she was in dental school. So she even like attended wow. family picnics, like FaceTiming <laughs> into like family dinner. So, you know, just looking at that story gives me goosebumps because it's like, look at the lengths that women will go to, to make everything right and make everything happen and keep mm-hmm. everybody happy. It's, you know, that's intense. <laughs> it's a lot. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, so, yes, they're all beautiful like stories. <laughs> yeah, so I presume all of the all of the women know each other's stories. Not yet, mm-hmm. <laughs> but they will. Wow. Yeah, yeah. What a what a great community that you've developed. I remember reading some of these backstories. Um, you know the uh, the edited version. Uh, <laughs> you know, in uh, you know, sort of preparing for for our conversation. Uh-huh. Yeah, and that particular one about the uh, um, the woman who is the dentist, like, wow, that was amazing. Like, whoa, yeah. And the thing is, is, when you, you know, hear her talk about it, she goes, mm-hmm. well, what are you going to do? You know? <laughs> gotta, you know, I was mom. I just had to make it happen. So I did. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I hear that a yeah. lot. Right, yeah, yeah. Just, you know, just the way you, you know, you've been able to share some of these stories, um, you know, it's just like sees how, you know, we see how how moms are really, you know, the superheroes. Um, you know, um, you know, uh Darlene Jane, you know, you saw your rose, um, and the other women, you know, whose work you've been sharing, you know, through this series. Um, yeah, lot lot of lot of hidden heroes, you know, around that <laughs> yeah. you know, you've been able to highlight, you know, in these various um public forums which we really appreciate. 
So, um, yeah, I want to thank you both so much for joining us and oh, hope to have welcome. maybe some more conversations along the way because your, your exhibit um, will be up for a minute. And, uh, yeah. yeah, maybe you could give our audience the details one more time, make sure that they are there, particularly for the opening. Sure. The opening is uh, September 19th, 6 to 9 p.m., at Coden Canvas, which is 151 Potrero Avenue in San Francisco. And um, I was telling you about the dance thing. That is 730 sharp if you want to see that. It should be really good. <laughs> okay, cool. And, and your website, could you give that to our audience? Sure. It is carrying-stones.com. And you can find all the information about the show there. Okay, yeah. And and Darlene, uh, Jane, um, do you have a website yeah. that you'd like to share with our audience? I do. It's DarleneJaneArt.com. Pretty simple. Um, my first name is spelled D-A-W-L-I-N-E. So, um, yeah, check it out. <laughs> thank you. Okay, cool, super. Right. Well, thank you both so much uh, for joining us, and I look forward to meeting you Um uh, at the gallery, I'd like to see the uh, the dance production, so I'm going to try to get there on time so I can see it before seven. Thank you, Wanda, <laughs> so much right. for Wonderful. having me, Darlene. Thank you so much, <laughs> You're welcome. You take good care. <laughs> Bye. Okay. Bye. Bye. Ah, good morning, uh, and welcome to the show. Um, am I speaking to? Um, Let's see. I've got two two people in the studio, so it's either Tina Taylor, director, um, or um, Bryce Smith, who plays Aaron, or Shane uh, Foffrey, uh, who plays Titus, yes. who's in the studio right at the moment. Or is everybody there just sharing? Yes. Uh, uh, well, this, this is Shane, Wanda. Oh, hi, Shane. Hi, how are you? Good morning. I'm good. How are you? Uh, very well, thank you. Excellent, excellent. And uh, I think I heard your voice, Tina, did I? Yep, I'm here too, yep. Okay, super, super, yeah. Well, we are talking about Titus and Andromachus at Theater uh, uh, Lunatico. Lunatico. Lunatico, yeah, I knew I had the accent yeah. in the wrong place. Lunatico. <laughs> <laughs> and and the show opened uh, last week. Ah, here's our third guest. Ah. <laughs> oh, good morning, Bryce. How are you? Oh, good. How are you? I'm fine. I'm fine. Um, your colleagues, Tina and, um, and Shane, are in the studio. You can say hi if you like. Oh, hello, all. Hey, hey, Bryce. Hey, Bryce. Hey. Yeah. So I was just letting our audience know that Titus and Andronicus opened at Theater uh, Lunatico um, last week, August 30th, and it continues through the end of September, September 29th, at Laval Subterranean Theater. Um, and uh, is that in Berkeley? Yes. Right, yeah, right. Yeah. Why don't you give the address, because I don't have it right here where I'm reading. Yep. The the address is eighteen thirty four Euclid Avenue. Berkeley. Okay. So we're we're in the subterranean theater just below Laval's pizza, so you can grab your pizza and beer and come on down to the theater. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So um I I have some really long bios, but maybe I'll 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 read the bios maybe after we talk a little bit about 
this this classic play and um and and why um uh theater Lumatico decided to you know to bring it to um uh to the stage right now um yeah. you know and uh it's definitely um has some current resonance and your theater and I really would love for you you know all to talk about it uh, theater uh Lumatico is a different kind of theater um you know people really sort of feel it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Okay. Yeah. Tina, do you want to start? Um. Yeah. Sorry. Could could you ask the question again? There was a little interference on on, on my line. So. Okay. Sure. Yeah. I was saying that um, uh, your particular theater, theater Alunatico, is is um. I was reading about it, and I I rather not read sort of what kind of theater it is. You know, I know you do a lot of physical theater, and yeah. and then this particular play, I was just wondering you know, sort of why you decided to to bring this particular work uh to the stage right now. Um and then yes. um and then we'll shift and and then you know you're also director. You could talk a little bit about that if you like. And then we can shift and let Shane um play Titus and, and Bryce who plays Aaron talk about yes. their characters and their roles and you know why they wanted to you know, yes to be in these particular um uh bring these characters to life, you know, at this this point, you know, why why they wanted yeah. to do this. Yeah. Um yeah, I um well we are doing Titans right now I think because of the political climate that we're in, you know, with such a, a, a rise in or it feels like a rise in extremism and very reactionary um a, a very reactionary climate. And um, Titus is certainly a play in which um, revenge and um, extremely reactionary um, action is is happening. And um, within the context of a very brutal sexism and a very brutal racism. Um, and so I, I, I think that that's why I was drawn to it right now, um, to kind of speak to that climate that we're in. Mm-hmm. Uh, and... Um, you know, it, it's sort of so disheartening to see what seems like these this backslide when it comes to addressing systemic racism and sexism. And um, and, and interestingly, Titus opens with a with a with a sort of discussion about democracy, actually, <laughs> um, as well. And it seems like we're we're in a time when our democracy feels so fragile. Um, and and so those were the main reasons. Um, for choosing this play right now. It's been sort of on my mind to do the play for a while, if, if nothing else, because it's such a challenge. You know, it's definitely, it feels like Shakespeare threw down the gauntlet a little with this play. It's a very challenging and difficult play to do. Um, and, and, and you know, it's nice to have a challenge as a director like that. But um, it also seems timely, very timely right now. Um, it's been so disheartening. You know, personally as a woman, you know, having been fighting the feminist cause for so many decades to feel like mm-hmm. we are sliding so, so far back. And um, this play certainly addresses those issues. Mm-hmm. Yeah, thank you. So, um, uh, let's see, Bryce or, or Shane, whoever wants to respond to the question can, uh, whoever wants to do it mm-hmm. first. I'll give it a go. Okay. Um, 
Well, yeah, just like uh, what Tina was saying, it's just it's very appropriate for night right now, and the parallels between you know what we're seeing in political theater today as uh, what we're bringing to our theater, it's 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 incredible. Um, and Tina, she is staged in a way that makes it very apparent. You know, we're very uh, we're staging in a way where red is red, blue is blue, just as you can see in. Um, you know, as you turn on the th- uh, turn on the uh, TV, you know CNN versus Fox News. It's it's uh, yeah, it's it's shocking. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Oh wow, yeah. Um, right? Yes, that was me. <laughs> oh, that was you. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> okay, <Yeah>. Shane. <laughs> uh, yeah. My apologies. Um, yeah, I couldn't agree more. It's you know, it's very much about the established order versus something new and different that is you know appearing in today's world and the established order being you know the the resistance we see on the right um, versus. The, the modern the modern kind of upspring of feminism and um, liberalism where we Tina staged the play in many ways to reinterpret it in these terms and to kind of show the difference between the two and and, and um, what the conflict is between the two views of the world and and, and kind of what what new hope could be offered to um, mm. Through, through an alternative, basically, and um, it's very interesting how you know Shakespeare wrote this hundreds of years ago, but even today it's relevant and relevant because it's literally you can literally interpret the play through that lens, and it just fits it so well. It really tells that story. I think that's the approach that Tina and everybody involved has gone for. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And um, talk about, you know, your relationship, um, Aaron's relationship with, with Titus. What, what's the story, um, for those who don't know this particular work? Well, uh, Aaron, uh, Aaron is a Moor uh, who has uh, just returned to Rome, who's just come to Rome as a prisoner of war, because Titus, as general, uh, led the war against the Goths uh, in a uh, decided a decided victory. So um, we actually open, we open um, as Titus comes back with all the spoils of war, including his prisoners, and I'm one of them. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. So Aaron is a person of African descent, right? When you say more. Uh, yeah, yeah, I, I, yes, yes. That's um, the interpretation. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because Shakespeare hasn't doesn't have that many um, characters of African descent. I think there might be four of them. Um, <laughs> so this is one of those plays, and you know people know Othello, but that's not the only one. You know we got um, this one, and and these so these you know these men, um, if I remember the play correctly, um, are 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 soldiers. You know they're they're warriors, and yet there's. Um, uh, 
you know, Shakespeare, the way he writes um, the characters, you know, there's, um, there, the, the, you know, I think the Aaron character in particular, you know, is allowed to have um, some compassion and, and sort of um, vulnerability around, around children and, and bloodshed. Um, you know, he just doesn't just, Kill for the sake of killing. Whereas Titus is a very different kind of character. Um, yeah, so if we could talk a little bit about about the contrast, and then I think um, I think uh, the way that um, theater um, in Nautico, um sort of stages this, there is some some changing of of who plays what. You know, um, like you know the physicality of the role. It and I think some of the names even might change. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about that, um, uh, Tina. Yes. Um, Yeah, we have changed the gender of some of the key roles, which we do every time we do Shakespeare, because, you know, as a company, we're, you know, committed to um, having gender parity in in our productions. And and Titus, um, to our creative team and cast, we do have gender parity. Um, And so some of the key... uh, uh, characters have been changed to women uh, in order to just um, uh, really to address what Shane was saying about uh, you know living in a time of a changing order and um, so there's a lesbian relationship that's sort of really key to the story and um, a hate crime against that the, the two women in that in that relationship <clears throat> and um, and interesting, you know, going back to what you were just saying about Aaron, you know, he is the only character that shows some vulnerability and, and some um, uh, motive behind his behavior. But, you know, of course, we have these, these two white characters, Saturninus and Titus, who commit horrendous crimes. But um, at the end of the play, we're asked to feel sympathy and sorrow for them, whereas Aaron Moore, as the, you know, African character, is um, is at the end of the play where we're we're asked to um, punish him and and he is the character that we're we're asked to hate basically, and so I I think the play does not a little to that um, that white privilege um, that we see in our culture in terms of who's who's held accountable, you know. Yeah. Yeah. So I was wondering. Um... Uh, Bryce, uh, I was reading that um, this is your second production with uh, uh, Lunatico, and uh, you performed in Dracula with the company last year. And yeah. Um, and yeah, and you you say in your bio that uh, that exploring a character such as Aaron was new territory for you. Ah, so how is that? How was it new ter- territory to explore Aaron? I guess coming from Dracula, well, but I'm sure you had others, other, other, other work between them. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, well, interestingly, I actually did a Death Trap right before this play. Mm-hmm. So with uh, Clifford Anderson, I got to dabble in being uh, something of a something of a, like an evil genius who's never really uh, who's never really being straight with any of the characters. He's always got that underlying um, like mo- motive going on, that's mm-hmm. ulterior motive. And um, it, was just, it was just so fascinating to 
uh, for someone like that, someone that just, um, you know, he's always got, he's always got something up his sleeve. You know, he's always, he's always thinking, he's always plotting. He's al- there's always something going on. And, um, yeah, it's just, it's, it's been a blast. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. And and your character's relationship, Aaron's relationship with Titus, because he's a prisoner of war, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And um, and it seems like that relationship kind of shifts, because if I remember correctly, uh, Titus respects Aaron's uh, skill, war, you know, skill as a, as, a, as a soldier. It almost sees him as a peer, I think. Oh, uh, uh yeah, uh, maybe. It's, <laughs> it's, well, I think, uh, no. yeah, can you take it? <laughs> okay. Well, I mean, Aaron starts out as uh, a not significant character in Titus's mind. I mean, he's taken as a prisoner of war, um, pretty much as kind of a, a right hand man to Tamara, who's. Titus's main prisoner of war, the former queen of the Goths. Uh, it evolves. It turns out, of course, that Titus that that Aaron is very smart, very cunning, um, and he's scheming behind his back. In fact, in many ways, you could say he he drives Tamara's actions towards Titus. So of course he becomes something much more significant than he starts out as within Titus's viewpoint, if you will. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, yeah. In many ways, he he is Titus. Titus's opposite, I suppose. Mm-hmm. It's kind of a challenge yeah. because, um, as Tina said, I, I think you'd agree, Bright. Like Aaron is written as as kind of the baddie, but of course. In reality, he's like he's the other person within society, and so he has many reasons for doing what he does. And the challenge is to show that. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't think Titus sees that, of course. Titus doesn't mm. see a lot of things. Uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, every, everyone <laughs> in the play is blinded by revenge and, and vengeance and uh, personal vendettas and so forth, you know. Mm-hmm. Right, yeah, yeah. And Shane, how do you pronounce your last name? Uh, well, Fahey would be okay. the way most Americans say it. Fahey? <laughs> yeah, Fahey. Okay, Fahey, okay. Yeah, and, and you last appeared uh, with uh, Gunahiko in 2018 as well as Angelo in Measure for Measure. And um, and and you uh, more more recently were in uh, the chaplain in Ubuntu Theater's Mother Courage, um, which I thought was really awesome. So I saw you in that, and and Duran Duran in Dreams on the Rock, uh, Bar Barbarella, and you were nominated. Congratulations for a Bay Area Theater Critics Award for your portrayal of David at New Conservatory Theaters for the Love of Comrades. And uh, so, how awesome. Yeah, and um, and then, uh, Tina, I want to read a little bit of your bio. Um, you are the director and the choreographer, uh, and you are the artistic director of Theater Lunatico. <laughs> and, and, 
Yeah, you're an English theater artist who's been acting, directing, and facilitating theater both in the U.K. and California for over 30 years. Um, you were originally a dancer before turning your attention to theater. You have a B.A. Uh, honors in uh, Drama and Dancing Leeds University in England. Uh, and you're skilled in the process of devising original theater through ensemble improvisation. And you've worked in prisons and with community service organizations using theater as a means of conflict resolution. Oh, how wonderful. Um, you also teach Shakespearean acting, using your physical theater training as a gateway to decoding and understanding text. You have a deep, intuitive understanding of the craft, of the craft and acting and enjoy bringing your diverse performance background and spontaneous creativity to your directing and teaching work. Um, past productions include Shakespeare, Chekhov, uh, Sheridan, Brecht, Bond, Zimmerman, and many original plays devised through ensemble improvisation. Um, and you're going to be um, directing the West Coast premiere of Convoy 31,000 with Theater Lunatico in the fall of 2019. Maybe we have time you could tell us about that. I don't know that particular play. But I was yeah. wondering, um, Shane and Bryce um, and uh, Tina, if you could talk a little bit about this, this physicality, like what are you doing, you know, um, in this particular production that sort of makes it original, makes it, you know, um, because of the physicality that you bring into the work. What does that What does that look like? How does that feel in your body? Um, well, I, I think that the, the the feeling it in your body is the is the key thing, uh, particularly with Shakespeare. You know, it's um, you know obviously our focus has to be on the very beautiful, complex uh, language that Shakespeare uses and um, that verse form. You know. Uh, but also, I, I think that if you lean too heavily in that direction, Shakespeare can be hard. <laughs> or it can be long and hard yeah. to get through. So um, I think if actors can truly em embody what they're saying, um, it not only helps to tell the story, you know, because Shakespeare does weave these very complex plots, um, but you know it it animates and enlivens Shakespeare, and and we're we're actually fortunate to be working in a very tiny space, so um, it's very you know upfront and um, uh, close to the audience. But um, you know I, I I just feel in general that that process for actors of truly embodying what they're saying in a way that's um, uh, fluid and natural is is one of the big tasks that actors have, and and that's where I've always you know I started out as a dancer, and then moved into physical theatre, and and that's you know for me how theatre comes alive, and um, and and it and it's a it's a breakthrough process for actors who who um, get get kind of stuck in a very uh, um, uh, kind of uh, stuck <laughs> physical place. I'm struggling to find the word there. But, um, you know, it, it, it's a process that I think is very helpful to actors and, and great for the audience, you know, very, very, very alive. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. Um, so um, a response to that particular question, or you maybe can share, like, a favorite moment in the work? Well... 
Yeah, I just I agree with Tina in that you know we're very fortunate to be working in this uh, small setting because it it really forces us as actors to take a careful reexamination in many of the text because you know not only not only are we you know, reciting this this verse but we also need to embody it because the space is in itself very unforgiving in that if we're if we're fake at all with you know with our movement or with what we're saying, it immediately comes across to our audience. So mm. it's it's working on this. It it it's like you you have to believe in everything you're doing and you're saying, and it just makes it all the more powerful as you're doing it. And um, I mean, it it comes across to the audience that you are feeling it, that you are you know believing in yourself. It comes across very quickly. And yes, mm. it's just mm-hmm. it's a great way to do theater. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and yeah. I think it's it it goes to the heart of it what Tina said, which is that you know when you're using complex language, which is you know Shakespeare Shakespeare is a little bit of a foreign language to a lot of people who don't read it every day, obviously. So mm-hmm. if you can help tell the story with your body and through physical actions, um, then by all means you should do that, and that's I think what Lunatico aims to do here. Uh, but additionally, because it's because it's theater and it's what we call stripped-down theater, the idea being that we take away all the fluff and we take away all the fancy spectacle and we basically make it about the actors, the sounds, the lights and the set, but mm-hmm. without any extraneous things going on, then the idea is to tell the story as best you can in that way. And so, for example, the choreography in many ways um, heightens what's going on and uh, it tends to add in some ways like little abstract interpretations of what's going on in order to you know, reinforce the picture within the audience's mind. And I think that's... To me, that's what theater should do. You know, it's not cinema. It's not video. It's live. It's live theater, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's about people right. in place and being intimate with your audience. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so in closing, um, maybe you could give the uh, the details again about, you know, the when, where and how to get tickets. And then if we have any more time, maybe you can maybe um, maybe we close with a favorite um, scene. Or a favorite um, yeah, scene. So, <laughs> yeah. it, um, it, so we're at Laval Subterranean Theater, uh, 1834 Euclid Avenue in Berkeley. And the show runs... Until Bryson, Shane, you may have to help me out. My dates are not coming to me. <laughs> um, when does it close? Dates aren't coming to me either, unfortunately. Oh, it closes on the 29th. Oh, no, it closes. The 29th, yes. And it's okay. performances are Thursday, Friday, Saturday, and Sunday evenings. And uh, our website is www.theaterlunatico.org. And. Um, uh, there's a brown paper tickets, you know, website too, uh, where you can get tickets, and um, we we do also take walk-ins. Okay, cool, cool, yeah. Um, 
favorite um oh sorry favorite, favorite scene sorry. It's, yeah it's hard to say favorite scene when it's such a brutal play but um there is uh, you know i you know the actors are so fine bryce and shane their performances are amazing we haven't touched in this inter interview about um a whole other aspect of the play, which is that it centers around the <coughs> brutal rape of um, a young woman, um, Lavinia, played by Isabel Langan. And, you know, her work in this play is, is so stunning and heartbreaking. And um, I really want to give a shout out to her for the work she's done. Um, uh oh. Uh, you know, uh, hi. Uh, there's a. Um, a scene where her aunt, in the play, it would, in the original, it would be her uncle, but we've swapped the gender. So her aunt discovers her soon after this brutal attack and, um, mm -hmm. uh, you know, has a, has a beautiful speech, speech in finding her. And Isabel's physical work in that scene is just devastating. But also we use mm. the chorus to, um, to support that moment in a way that, you know, we're constantly trying to find a way to make this brutal violence in the play meaningful rather than gratuitous. And mm -hmm. um, so I, I think I'd, I'd like to mention that, Justine, just to mention that part of the show and the work that Isabel has done um, mm -hmm. on that. And indeed, uh, Sean Oda, who plays um, her, her aunt, Marcia, in that moment. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah. So is that a part of... Um because I think I think you all gave a synopsis earlier on. So, um, is is the brutal rape of a person of a character that was a prisoner of war, or was she like? No, she, she was her... actually Titus. She's Titus's daughter, and mm -hmm. she that oh. rape is is plotted by Aaron. Actually, so Bryce could talk us all to that, but. Um, it's it's a retaliation for the the mm. at the opening of the play Titus actually brutally kills um, Tamara's oldest child, and this is a retaliation for that. Um, mm. So uh, it's actually Titus's daughter who, who who that happens to, and then Titus. Well, actually, maybe shouldn't spoil the end. <laughs> but, okay, um, right. It, but um, yeah, it's it is a whole other aspect of this of this play. Looking looking at the um, the, the toxic rape culture actually is very much mm -hmm. a part of mm -hmm. this play. Yeah, well, thank you, thank you so much for sharing that. Yeah, yeah, that's important. And so, would you say that this play is um, more for mature audiences? Uh, yes, 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 definitely. Um, yeah, um, and you know it's it's you you have to go there understanding that that it does explore um some very brutal moments of uh revenge of, of racism of sexism of you know and and our hope is that when the audience come out there is a meaning to that that we we touch hearts and um mm -hmm. stay you know pure stay pure to the story and, and let it speak for itself as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it seems that it has a real contemporary uh, resonance, um, particularly when we think about uh, some of the heads of state uh, here in this country um, yep. and what's going on, you know, around around the Me Too, Me Too movement and exactly. what's happening around immigration, um, which, which looks like hostage you know, sort of prisoner of war kind of situation. People are coming here from other countries and then they can't leave yep. and their children are separated yep. from them and 
you know, children and adults. And, and dying. Babies. Children are dying. Yeah, it's, definitely. Yeah, so dying. It's, yeah. It's, yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. 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 Hmm. Oh, wow. Okay. So, Shane, um, uh, you know, any particular um, scene, uh, you don't have to necessarily be in it or lines that maybe you speak, you know, that has a resonance for you that you'd like to conclude with? <laughs> um, yeah, it's kind of hard, hard to pick a scene. Uh, I guess without offering spoilers, I... I uh, oh. I agree with Tina. I think I think the 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 nexus of the play is that, in some ways, is that scene where where um, Lavinia undergoes a brutal rape. Not so much the scene itself, but everything that happens immediately after that. In terms of uh, mm-hmm. you know the whole play kind of turns on that, and mm-hmm. there's so much compressed into one two, three, four scenes there that, that um, <clears throat> it turns the whole story around. Um, honestly, there's so many moments in it that are just so rich. I mean, typically of Shakespeare, I guess. Um, I do have a particular fondness for for the... Um, gosh, it's just hard to pick a moment, to be honest with you. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's almost like you know. It's almost like it's uh, it's like a not a good thing for an actor to do. I don't know if you agree with that, Bryce. But I feel like I feel like I've got to do pay homage to all, all of us, the entire play. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. That's fine. Yeah. <laughs> all right. So we will pay homage to the to the whole play. And not, not, and not <laughs> fragmented. <laughs> okay, cool. Yeah, well, I, I, right, right. Yeah. Well, is there is there music? Um. Yes. Well, there's a. Oh, is somebody on a ferry? Wow, that's really cool. <laughs> sorry, that's that's the Amtrak. I'm sorry. Uh, oh yeah. Oh yeah. I'm sorry. I'm, sorry. I'm right next. I'm right next to the train tracks. So I'm sorry uh, about that. Uh, no problem. <laughs> okay. Um, yeah. There's, there's there's no musician on the stage, but there is a, a sound, you know, design to it. You know, to to the show. Uh-huh. Yeah, and what I was actually leaning towards uh, for, you know, my pick of uh, favorite scenes is actually how we closed the play. We closed the play oh. with a, uh, a bit of a music music number, and um, it's mm-hmm. it's it's just it's very very appropriate, and it's it's very deep and hard hitting, and it's just mm-hmm. it's. Uh, yeah, the way Tina decided to close the play, it's just, it's beautiful. And um, it's yeah. definitely one of my favorite parts of the entire play. Oh, that's okay. a good, that's nice. a really good take, actually. Sorry, Wanda. That's a really good take for best scene because in many ways it's like after this terribly brutal play, again, I hope this this is not a spoiler, but it's kind of like, it's, it's kind of healing to do that mm. last, number um, uh-huh. and the, the particular tune, the particular song and where it came from and what it means is quite mm-hmm. something. I mean, it was a great pick 
I have to say. Yeah, it's like it kind of, yeah, it almost puts a band-aid on the wounds in in a good way, Mm -hmm. not in a, not in a superficial way. Right. In many ways, you know, well, it kind of goes to the heart of, of what like happens when, 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 when there's violence and when there's um, a wound and when there's hate and so forth and all these terrible things that happen to people in life, really the only the only succour or the only kind of healing is through art, through song, through folk tale and through through um, some kind of communal ritual, which is essentially what a song is. So, I, I, yeah, it's a really good way to round the show, actually. Mm-hmm. Oh wow! Yeah, yeah. Oh, well, thank you, thank you so much for for offering that because you know it sounds like this this play um, is gonna um, just gonna leave people kind of raw, and so it's great that you know there's 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 an intention, um, you know, from from, uh, from you, Tina, uh, as director um, to to give people some some hope and some tools. You know, so that they don't yeah, they don't yeah. walk out, you know, in the wrong way. Yeah. You know, right. And and it, and it's very important as a director to constantly ask myself, you know, how how is this going to land with the audience, and, and what's the purpose of this? Why are we doing it? What are we, you know? Uh, and um and I always we actually just dropped that song in, um you know, I think within a week of the show opening because I always like to hold closing the show until the end so, so I see the whole thing, see the whole play and, and how it's landing and then really ask that question, how do I want the audience to walk out you know uh, and not that I can control how an audience responds or, or feels in any way but that I am certainly giving thought to um, that closure and and um, and the, it, the song is sung so beautifully by the cast and it, it's heartbreaking. <laughs> it is heartbreaking and um, I, I I got lucky. I I really do have a really amazing cast and we've all worked. I think worked incredibly well through this play given the material that we've been able to hold each other in a in a really good way through some very brutal material. And I hope that comes mm-hmm. across to the audience too. The, the you know the, the the purity of the intention behind doing the show. Right. Yeah. Oh, I'm so looking forward to it this evening. Um. Wow. Yeah. Great. Yeah. Good. Yeah. I look forward to seeing it this evening. I don't. I don't think I've ever. I can't remember. Maybe one time seeing a play um there um and it is really nice and intimate and uh, so you can really sort of lose yourself you know in the work, um because you're that yeah. that close to to what's happening. Mm-hmm. So yeah, yeah. Well, thank you, thank you all so much for joining us to talk about the work and and your, you know, and uh, yeah, and and why you do what you do. Really, really appreciate it. But I you know, actually, I don't think we talked about why you do what you do. Um, I think I read it in your <laughs> in your bio, Tina. <laughs> so maybe that's a conversation for another time. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Thank you so much for having us here and and, and listening to uh, our uh, our uh, you know li- listening to us <laughs> talk about our art. <laughs> yeah. Sure, sure. Yeah. Well, hopefully yeah, this is you, this is a conversation that's going to continue. <laughs> think, good, good, good. Thank you. Yeah. All right, yeah, you take good care and definitely you, stay in touch. Look forward to seeing you this evening. Oh, thank, you. thank you. Thank you.
You're welcome. Thank you have you, a good Linda. rest of the day. Mm-hmm. Thank, thank, you. thank you so much. You too, okay. You're welcome. Bye bye. bye. Thank you. Mm-hmm. So while we wait for our next guest to join us, we're going to play um, uh, Sweet Honey and the Rock, um, like this piece called Hope. If we want hope to survive in this world today, then every day we've got to pray on, pray on. If we want hope to survive in this world today, then every day we've got to pray on. If we want hope to survive in this world today, then every day we've got to pray on, pray on. If we want hope to survive in this world today, then every day we've got to pray on. If we want hope to survive in this world today, then every day we've got to pray on, pray on. If we want hope to Break 
um, got nine minutes, and so we're going to go a little bit into overtime. But I want to play this really wonderful interview that I had with Shakti Butler, um, director, um, activist, artist who has been making who's been making these wonderful films. And uh, and this particular one, her her final in in the series of work, um, uh, Healing Justice, happened maybe one or two years ago. But anyway, we had a conversation with her before um, the uh, opening program uh, screening of the film and discussion. So um, I just think she has some really wonderful insight to share. So I'm going to play that interview. Uh, it's called Healing Justice. And, uh, yeah, thanks so much for listening to another edition of Wanda's Picks. And you can tune in uh, Wednesdays uh, from 8 to 10 and, again, Fridays from 8 to 10 Pacific time. And, uh, yeah, thanks so much for being a supporter. Peace and love. Oh, here we go. Okay, super. Thank you so much, Shakti Butler, for joining us to talk about your latest work, Healing Justice. Oh, my goodness. And you're having (laughs) an opening this weekend on Saturday for the lucky folks who are going to be able to fit into that that building, I mean, wow, I mean, at this point of your, of your, you know, wonderful work that you're doing around creating space for these important conversations, you probably need an amphitheater. <laughs> <laughs> well, we are almost sold out, just so you know. <laughs> okay, okay. I'm not surprised. I'm not surprised mm-hmm. at all, particularly, you know, um, you know, in your collaboration with, um, uh, with uh, Nicole um, and the Embodiment Project, and then they have yes. they're going to be in a, a dance program, I think Thursday, uh, and then next week as well. You're one of the Center for the Arts, so it's like a preview, preview. <laughs> yes, 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 yes. She's wonderful. Her company's amazing. Yeah, Nicole, totally like, amazing. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, and that really wonderful. Um, you know, having uh, the film as a part of a multimedia dance piece. Mm-hmm. Oh, man, it works so well. Oh, my God. <laughs> it's just like, wow, Nicole is just, and her team, Nicole Clayman and her team, they are just so brilliant. But then, you know, look yes. at this work that you're doing and how, um, wow, um, how it so it lends itself to these different spaces. But then, you know, you kind of know that already. And I was just wondering if you could talk about um, your use of film, you know, to create these places where people can talk about um you know, uh, issues and explore their values within the context of a larger discourse that may be impeding their ability mm-hmm. to be fully mm-hmm. human. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, we all understand how powerful media is mm-hmm. and that media plays such a large part in in um, shaping culture. Um, and culture, of course, is where a lot of the racialization that takes place in this country is embedded inside of culture in in ways that it becomes unconscious to so many people, particularly white people, are not aware of the role that is an extension of the history that this country is embedded in. And so using film and, and then turning film into something that really is more of a whole body experience, mm-hmm. in other words, including art and and dance and movement um, along with the stories that people tell is a way that you can actually, I believe, help help 
further and deepen the, the capacity to analyze something that is so complex, uh, much more so than just reading a book, although I love reading and I'm not in any way um, denying the import of the written word. But there's something about film where people can step into what it is they see, particularly when they relate to it as part of their own lived experience or if it's completely antithetical to their lived experience. But it does promote, I think, deeper conversation than what people might tend to have, particularly um, across difference. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I remember when <laughs> when your when your earlier films, you know, came out. Um, you know, the way home. You know, you've got women sitting around talking. And it's like, oh, like who does this? <laughs> and what what important? <laughs> I mean, and and then invite us to listen to the conversation and 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 how it affects all of us. And mm-hmm. like, wow. So yeah. And then the women you had gathered, you know, having these conversations were, you know, you know. A, quite a mix, you know, of, of leaders and people we didn't even know were doing what they were doing. So awesome. Right. Yeah, and then right. mayor is a privilege. Oh, my goodness, making whiteness visible. <laughs> Whoa. I, I, I used yeah. that in my class um, on a, a number of, of occasions at, you know, uh, I teach English, but I was using your, your film, you know, to sort of interrogate mm-hmm. race and, and and the myth of of uh uh, I guess of uh, privilege and and you know the reality of of you know the structural racism that sort of really is continuing to sort of guide uh, policies. Right. I mean, you know, there's you don't even have it's not even being hidden now. <laughs> right. And, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> and then lighting the shadow. Oh my goodness! And cracking the codes, um, the system of racial inequality, inequity. Excuse me. And. Um, and then now, you know, sort of looking at, you know, healing justice. Whoa, like, how how did you how did you do this? And sort of, you know, in your training, and how did you come to to create <laughs> world trust? I mean, it's such a useful. Uh, I mean, you can people can like get so many tools there. I mean, you've got things they can download that they can use right now. <laughs> Yes, <laughs> they can yes. see clips. I mean, you, I mean, if you can't buy the film, you can rent it for two, three dollars or something. I mean, it's just like awesome, awesome work there. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, I think it's probably. Um, first of all, I appreciate the the um, compliments, and I there are a lot of ways where I feel like I can't personally take credit um, for the body of work, in the sense that. A lot of it is based upon my life experience um, and, you know, how much race has been a central component of my life in informing who I am and how I think um, from the experiences that I had growing up. Um, and, um, And then a lot of the creative part of what has informed the work that uh, we do has been through my meditation practice. Mm -hmm. And so I feel like um, a part of my practice says, you know, we all are, we all move through the world um, like birds, that we have two wings. One is self-effort and one is grace. And I feel like self-effort and grace really is what is at the center of my own need to make sense of the world that I live in and how race is embedded in absolutely every single thing that I see and do 
and how it impacts our communities and our children. And, um, and I mean, it impacts everyone, but we can see the danger of it, you know, in the African-American community and all other communities of color, whether you're brown or indigenous or whatever the case might be. Um, we can see that race is something that destructs life in the way that it's been formulated and the way policies and laws amplify the structural barriers that um, create the world from being a place that's equitable. And so, I, you know, sometimes I think, like a lot of people, I wish I could just turn it off um, and take a pause. But, you know, every time I look at my kids and my grandkids and my community members and and I see what's going on in the world, particularly now where the veil has been pulled back to some extent, um, you just can't help but think about it and see, well, what can we do? What what needs to be done? So I feel like we we make a very small contribution to uh, what it is to try to understand uh, what it is that we're dealing with here and what are some of the things that we need to create in order to uh, make change. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. So I noticed that um, you got your doctor from uh, California Institute of Integral Studies, in the yes. School of uh, Transformative Learning, a lot of great learning yes. and change, a lot of great work has come out of that particular right. Um, right. institution right. around that particular right. um, idea of, right. of, you know, the inquiry. And, and you have an MA in Guidance and Counseling from Bank Street College of New York. Right. And you graduated right. magna cum laude from City College of New York. So... Are you a clinician as well um, when you say guidance no, and counseling? No. No? I don't consider myself a, cl- a clinician in any way, and I, I've never used my guidance counseling degree specifically, mm-hmm. although I had, you know, I taught brain injury, emotionally handicapped mm-hmm. um, junior high school boys in the South Bronx, and I ran a drug treatment for women in Harlem. I grew up in Harlem for, you oh, know, wow. a few years mm-hmm. before I moved to California. And um, I think of myself more as an educator, mm-hmm. and um, the, I was interested in transformative learning because of my deep spiritual experiences. And transformative learning basically says, um, how do we explore and examine the embedded assumptions that we have about how we think the world works? And that when we, you know, in psychology, they would call it cognitive dissonance. But when the rug is pulled out from under your feet and you realize that the world is not the way you think it is, that there's more. And that can be terrifying for a lot of people. Um, sometimes it's referred to as a, a disorienting dilemma. But I really just want to know how does change happen? You know, how do we change? How do we grow? How do I change? How do I grow? And, and you know, what what supports that change and growth? Because the path that we're headed on is a very destructive one. And part of that is that we really believe that we are individuals. You know, we've been taught to think that we're individuals, having individual experiences. But in fact, you know, we our lives are inextricably bound. And so we have to figure out what does it mean to remember our indigenous roots as African people, as Native people. Mm-hmm. You know, we have to remember uh, what it means to be community. And certainly punishment and the way the law works, which is this latest film on healing justice, mm-hmm. is all about punishment and not about healing community. And um, it's just an extension of the craziness 
of the history that that we are embedded in that informs our culture and identity but is controlled by power and economics mm-hmm. and when we don't see that we can't we can't really we can't really analyze it and we can't really uh work to make the kind of change that we need to make that's both internal and external certainly certainly yeah cuz the way um in in the uh the uh, clip that people can watch on your website, um, we get uh, some history of um, of eugenics, um, particularly right. that projected onto you know young black and brown boys. Um, yes. You know um, the social control, and then and then we have um, you know one of your um, experts, um, you know Mr. James Bell, um, mm. who who talks about uh, you know he's sort of like unpacks it for us, you know, in a quite in a, in a quite, you know, um powerful way. Yes. And um yes. and then, you know, some of the other folks, I mean, I just loved um the clip that I saw of Jerry uh Tello Tello, yeah. yeah, and he's talking about his grandmother, um uh, you know, who blessed the children <laughs> mm-hmm. and, and bless and them up, bless, bless them up, them up. yeah, yeah. And he, and and he talked about sort of that was connected to the ancestors who was who were blessing them before they were even born, you know. Yeah. And and he said, you know, um, you know, this this medicine. She said, he said, she had to medicine me up. I'm like, wow, right. that is right. awesome, yeah. Right. And the blessing right. was communal because he talked about, you know, his friend that they go pick up. And and his 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 big mama was also a part yeah. of this communal right. holding of the children, you know, as sacred. Right. I'm like, ah, oh, that was so beautiful. And then um, yeah. and then when you um, you know, we're sort of looking at the restorative justice circle. Oh my goodness, you know, the really powerful interview with Ethan uh, Vets Van Leer who was yes. participant in a restorative justice circle, and he talked about his friend Malik and how it sort of reminded me of the Central um, Central Park, um, Central Park Five. five. Mm-hmm. Yeah, what happened mm-hmm. to these boys? So that wasn't unusual. What happened to the Central Park Five? It just got more, you know, got big, you know, national media. But it happened to this young man too, and his friend, and and you know, Malik, and and what happened is so tragic. Um, what happened yes. to him, and there's so many Maliks, right? Yes, yes, yeah. it is tragic. Mm-hmm. It is tragic because, you know, it's a form of genocide as far as I'm concerned, mm-hmm. you know, I, and I know that I'm not saying that alone, mm-hmm. but this this um, this consistent pattern uh, of how um, I would say, you know, black folks, brown folks, native folks, Southeast Asian folks today, mm-hmm. people who come traumatized by war, you know, and violence. And, you know, there's a consistent pattern about who belongs and who doesn't belong. Haitians don't belong. Mm-hmm. You know, it's it's nothing new. It's what's always been going on. And the, and the way that we have been resilient and have survived is the way we have managed to love one another um, in spite of you know, all the ways that we have been traumatized. And and when I say we, you know, I use that as a, you know, sort of the collective we in terms of um, um, the the discrepancies in terms of the numbers of who ends up 
um, being killed, who ends up in jail, who doesn't go to school, who doesn't graduate, who who doesn't have good health care, you know, who doesn't have access to good transportation and jobs and housing and all of those things are, are related to each other and supported in the media, mm-hmm. you know, supported in the ways that our policies and laws uh, place us at risk on a daily basis. And uh, it's, it's, it's not correct. It's not right. Mm-hmm. So, but the people, you know, I think that the blessing that I've had in my life is to be able to um, really hear the stories and record the stories of people who have a lot of knowledge about how all of this works so that we, um, meaning the viewer, we can, we can absorb what it is that they have to teach us and use that teaching in order to be persistent or to support us into continuing um, to make change. Mm-hmm. Yes, certainly, certainly. I got an email um, about uh, 500 young people who were um, serving life and that are getting ready to come home uh, in, mm-hmm. from Phil- in Philadelphia, and mm-hmm. uh, and so got a got an email. Um, call for people in the community to step up to help these young men uh, now older you know mm-hmm. uh, return um you know to our community and um and and mentor them and help them you know acclimate themselves back into society um uh because that's certainly uh a a process you know after being right. away for so right. long yeah, right. yeah. I mean, like I said, like wow, five hundred. That's a lot of young people that were snatched mm-hmm. out of our community. Mm-hmm. You know, when they were like what, thirteen, fourteen, fifteen. Um, right, right. Yeah, yeah. It's like my goodness. Yeah, and yes, uh, mm-hmm. it does call for us to gather together. I mean, I think one of the one of the um, benefits of living in the society we're in today is that. It's so clear that we have to come together, that um, that our movement-building efforts have to increase so that when you have 500 young people coming home, it's like what other organizations that are like our joy exist in other parts of the country so that we can come together and create a network for young people who need support like this. Um, that's, that's part of the challenge of, of being able to spread the good work that is being done and learning from one another uh, in the process of how to do that work. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, yesterday I went to um, <clears throat> a really wonderful um, community meeting that was hosted by BOSS, and mm-hmm. um, it was looking at sort of the effects of, of felony convictions on people's being able to move in society once they've served their sentences. I mean, there's so much, I mean, hundreds of things people can no longer do. I mean, from right. being able to have a landscaping business, or that is, be able to mow a lawn, to being able to go on a field trip with their child, ride a school bus, um, serve on a PTA, you know, be a firefighter. I mean, there's just so many things a person can't do because they have a felony conviction. And in California, exactly. there there's exactly. no, um, what do you call it, um, expungement. Um, so right. it's always going to show up no matter whether or not you have a little thing in parentheses saying, you know, that it's been reviewed and, you know, you've, you're found like um, – suitable sort of, you know, but but it's still showing up, so that means that, um, you know, you can never be a teacher. And what if that's something you've always wanted to be, is a teacher? 
Right, right. Yeah, right, right, yeah. Right. So those laws have to be changed. Mm-hmm, and that can only happen when people have more understanding of why it's so unfair. Mm-hmm. And that public safety. I mean, James Bell yes. talks about this so beautifully in terms of how all of the, the things that we've done to help ensure public safety, mm-hmm. they just don't work. They're not working, you know. Um, just so many amazing people who are doing good work. It's uh mm-hmm. <laughs> it's it's, <laughs> it's exciting. It's actually exciting. Yes, it is because you know when he says that there's only thirty um, percent uh, of all the public monies left, you know, for taking care of, of you know the public needs, and then of that thirty percent, three percent for child well-being, and then um, and you know thirty percent has to cover the roads and park and rec and things like right. that too. But then when he says, yeah, children can't vote, so. We always have to keep their well-being in mind because they can't advocate for themselves. I'm like, yeah, that's so right. And then when Fanya and Fanya Davis and Morris Jennings, I uh, love his, you know, her definition going back to um, the um, the uh, meeting in Montgomery in 1955, and and uh-huh. what Dr. King said, you know, what justice is. And, That's and, right. Yeah. Do you remember what she said? Um, to justice is love, correcting. Right. I, I don't remember her exact words, but mm-hmm. you, you, that, that lo- love is what makes the correction. Love is what mm-hmm. it heals. Love, putting love into action, is what makes us whole. Mm-hmm. Is her basic message? Yes. Right. Yeah. And then, and then Morris Jennings, you know, uh, he was who's gala. He says that. Um, the uh, the just law is making things whole. So you know, saying the same thing. Whereas right. our our judicial system is about splintering and <clears throat> and separating. You know, so it's about power and control. Mm-hmm. About power and control. And what I lo- what I like about Morris too is that he is a lawyer. So he yes. talks about the just law <laughs> and the unjust law. Mm-hmm. You know, the unjust law being what he learned in law school, and the just law being what he learned from his family. Mm-hmm. About the importance of community and making things whole. Right. So yeah, yeah. That's very much really so. awesome. Yeah, and then I just love it when you sort of roll right into an example, and I don't know how it works in the film because I'm just looking at clips. But Shijata uh, uh-huh. um, Balika, uh, is that how you pronounce her name? Balika. Balika. Yeah, director of the Restorative Justice Project at Impact Justice. She tells the story about the cha- the uh, young man who, um, you know, uh, meets the person, you know, who he's wronged and so that they could, um, you know, come up with some kind of agreement so that he could repair right. the wrong and, and how that rolls out, you know, with someone asking him, um, you know, what makes you happy? And I'm like, oh, what what a beautiful yes. question. Yeah. Yes. What makes you happy? Mm-hmm. But yeah, the, the whole, the whole, the whole, um, there are many different forms of restoration and mm-hmm. there are two things. One is, um, uh, Sujata also talks about that when you have these diversion cases mm-hmm. where young people get to meet the person they've been harmed and are held accountable, that the statistics show that 99% of people who have been victimized preferred that process over going to court. That if they, if, uh, you know, something happened and they were harmed again, mm-hmm. um, they would prefer this method of dealing with it than just going to court. That's huge, 99%. That is huge. Because victims don't really get their needs met either. Mm-hmm. And Sonia Shaw says in the movie, you know, like, you know, let's say that you've been harmed and you, and you, 
you, you know, you get what you want. The person goes to jail or they get life or whatever it is that they've done. Um, are you happy? Mm-hmm. And what what we have found is that when people go through the, the, the judicial process and they get what they want, they, they're not healed either because the real questions that they have never get answered, like, were you staking me out? You know, what were my daughter's last words? You know, the questions that bother you the most um, because you're prevented from ever communicating with the person who's actually done the harm. Uh, neither party grows. The person who's done the harm doesn't have a chance to grow, and the person who's been harmed doesn't have a chance to heal either. Mm-hmm. And that's something that we really don't consider, and we're not taught to consider it either. Right. So at first, you know, people will go, oh, my God, you know, I, I can't imagine talking to someone who has actually caused harm to me or my family, but in actuality, the statistics show something quite different. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, so why don't you give us the details about this wonderful um, uh, premiere <laughs> on, on Saturday, uh, September 16th. Um, not many tickets left, but I know you're going to have other screenings. It would be really nice if you could have like a theatrical run. Um, is, that, is that in the works? You know, where, you know? Well, we do have other places in the country where people want to do showings of the film in, in their community. So um, if people are interested in attending the premiere this coming Saturday, it begins at, uh, I think, 6.45 is when we're seating people. The doors open at 6.30 at the First um, Congregational Church on 27th and Harrison in Oakland. And um, tickets are on sale. There are two things, two ways that you can approach this. One is you can go to our website, which is world-trust or world-trust.org, and at the top of the page is a link to get you to brown paper tickets. Or you can go directly to brown paper tickets and look up Healing Justice, and and you'll find it that way. Um, But also, if you do go onto our webpage, you can you can. become part of our mailing list, and then we can keep you apprised of when we'll have more showings, um, where it is that we're traveling to and that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So were there any um, any surprises, um, you know, as you – and how long did it take you to make the film? Um, yeah, and, and were you surprised by any of the conversations? Um, oh, yeah. <laughs> oh, okay. Mm. Very much so. Well, it – it takes about four years for us to make each film that we do. Okay. Um, and so there are always surprises because you may have a plan of what you're trying to um, accomplish, mm-hmm. but when you're filming people who have so much knowledge, you know, I'm learning too. Mm-hmm. And so, but then putting it all together so that it's in a, one cohesive piece is always the challenge. And in doing that, um, um, there's more learning that happens. And then, of course, you know, we're reading and studying and looking at resources that we can, you know, make part of our resource list. And then we go on to make these racial equity learning modules that help people deepen the conversation. So folks like you who are teaching or working with other people, um, whether it's a, a spiritually based or a government organization or whatever that might be, we have all of these other materials that can help you take the conversation deeper. But it's not, of course, just the conversation that we're after. We're after the transformative learning, but we're also after the change. Like, how, what, how are we going to put into action what it is that we're learning about? Mm-hmm. What are we going to do um, collectively and individually, but collectively, what are we going to do in order to address, you know, what the challenges are? 
Wow, four years. Wow, so that means that you have another project underway, huh? No, I think this is my last film. Oh, there's a um, there's a terminus. Oh my God! Seriously? <laughs> yeah, this will be my last uh, film of this kind. Yeah. I'm actually looking at working in the field of virtual reality to help create healing, mm-hmm. um, and using that technology and embed it into film. And we're probably going to um, have a different film crew, like a different, you know, like a little collaborative of filmmakers to mm-hmm. make films in the future because. I'm getting older, and um, there are other ways that I want to explore hmm. how we can deepen uh, transformation and healing. Wow. So how how um, how long has this journey been? I mean, I know I could crowd to go back, but you could just... <laughs> <laughs> um, I have been on this journey since um, of making films mm-hmm. since 1993. That's when oh. I started making The Way Home, which yeah. I finished in 1998. Yeah. And then, you know, each film that followed took, mm-hmm. you know, the, about the same amount of time. Yeah, you know, wow. Some some a little less and some a little more. So mm-hmm. you can see that I'm sort of, yeah. you know, and I got started in this part of my, this is my third career, so mm-hmm. so to speak, <laughs> if you want to call it a career. So you can tell I'm not, a, I'm not um, at the beginning of my game. <laughs> <laughs> I'm more towards the end of this run, and um, and so I'm choosing to, try to be the best student I can be and learn some new skills. Yeah. Wow. Well, I want to thank you for for all of this wonderful work that you've, you know, been work, been doing and, and, you know, the work that, you know, in the way that it's going to continue, you know, um, you know, much success in that. Um, do you want to talk about your team? Because I know, um, you know, your husband is intricately involved in, yes, in this. Yes. We have a very amazing team. So my husband, Rick Butler, who is co-director with me and um, also our camera person, is a four-time Emmy Award-winning cameraman and director. And um, he doesn't work for World Trust, but he, you know, we hire him. <laughs> Put a quotation around hire. We hire him um, in order to, you know, help make the visions that I come up with a reality. And then we have Amy Reeder, who's our operations person, um, who is, we call her the operations empress. She makes everything happen. She's fantastic. And Jenny Burson, who is our uh, communications, and um, she does some marketing, but she's our communications person, and she schedules all of the jobs. There are five of us Mm. who are facilitators who travel around the country and sometimes out of the country in order to um, show films and do the work that we've created, mm-hmm. you know, for other groups of people. Mm-hmm. And then we have, you know, a really strong administrative staff, you know, Avi Chandler and and Michelle and Marilyn are, you know, everybody works really hard. So, and then we have other people who are part-time, you know, who mm-hmm. work for us, you know, depending upon what we're trying to do. And this event, for example, is managed by our team and people that we've brought in to help make it happen. And then we'll have our gala in June at the Oakland Museum where hopefully we'll be showing some piece of virtual reality that goes along with this film that can be used in the training components or modules Mm -hmm. that we are creating. So sign up on our mailing list and then you'll, you know, you'll see everything that we're doing. Oh, mm-hmm. that's really awesome, awesome. And 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 I wanted to ask you lastly, um the um the name of your organization, World Trust, Social Impact through mm-hmm. Film and Dialogue, where does yes. the, where did that, that name come from? 
Well, World Trust was actually begun as a Boston corporation by someone else, mm-hmm. and I was brought into that, and there oh. were three of us. Mm-hmm. And those two people, actually it's sort of a story within a story, but those two people who I was working with, we um, we bumped heads around race. Mm-hmm. And they left, and I kept the corporation and made it a California corporation. And so World Trust is a name that I inherited, but I really love it. World Trust Educational Services, Inc., is what we've become, and um, we have done a lot of powerful work. Joy DeGruy, for example, did a clip yes. for us mm-hmm. um, in Cracking the Code. It's not a clip for us, but she, there's a clip that she did that has reached more than 30 million people. Mm-hmm. Um, we have other clips that have also had, you know, like millions and millions of people view them, and so we're really proud of the fact that we are a small, we call ourselves a small but mighty team, that we've been able to stimulate um, a lot of um, good thinking around some of these issues that are um, actually of dire importance. Mm-hmm. Yes, very, very important. And I, I just love the dialectic process that uh, mm-hmm. is a part of all of um you know, all of the gatherings, all of the screenings. It's not just watching a movie and then you go home. <laughs> you, right, you sort of, right. you know, you get you you um uh, you find out what your work is and you get busy. Right. And with others, right. so you're yes, not you're exactly. not in isolation, but you're with others. Yeah, yeah. Because yeah. I remember coming to one of your uh, screenings and. Um, well, I've, I've been to a couple of screens, but this particular one was my first, and I brought my class. It was at mm-hmm. um, uh, Summit uh, Hospital School, and um, right. and I, I I think it might have been Marriage of Privilege. I'm not. I think that was the film. Mm-hmm. But afterwards, mm-hmm. you know, we broke into groups, and my my students who have graduated, you know, on to I think they probably have masters now, maybe even some PhDs. But they really just really loved loved your process of mm-hmm. of you know mm-hmm. sort of taking the material and helping people own their aspect of it, you know. Yes, Because yes. we're in and there. That, <laughs> yes, and that will happen on Saturday. I mean, I, I oh. remember when we, because we screened Mirrors of Privilege at, at, at the same church. Oh. And mm-hmm. so it was so amazing to look out and see 600 people mm. of all shapes, colors, and sizes talking about race. Um, so earnestly, even though they were very short conversations, mm-hmm. we will repeat that process this Saturday so people will watch part one. There are three parts of the film. They'll watch part one and have, you know, like seven minutes to talk to each other and then part two, the same thing. And it's just, you know, all all this talk out there, people don't want to talk about race. It's not true. People do want to talk. They just don't know how mm-hmm. or they're afraid or whatever the case might be. And then there are always these splits that happen in the room, but we seem to be able to have people think outside of their own particular lived experience, maybe include that in what they're talking about, but to be able to think about society as a larger whole, which is what we are. Mm-hmm. Super. Well, thank you so much, and um, yeah, and have a wonderful thank you, screening on Saturday. Yes. It's going to be really yes. fantastic. Yes. And um, I wanted to... Uh,
Let me turn this off because she's 